HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. On behalf of our family of hosts, staff, and the millions of listeners who have tuned in since 2009, we want to wish you happy holidays and ask for your support as we launch our daily in-house news coverage. Please consider making us a part of your end-of-year giving in 2013. Your membership donation is tax-deductible and the best way to show you believe in our work and the importance of a free, food-focused media resource. Consider donating today at heritageradionetwork.org by clicking the Donate button. Thanks for your support, and enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Uh, sorry for the delay today. We got a little late start. Uh, we were celebrating the 199th episode of the main course, Patrick Barton's flagship show for the Heritage Radio Network, um, of which I once was host. Um, so uh, yeah, so today, folks, we have a really great guest and a really interesting topic, Um I guess today is Maureen Ogle, is a, she, who is an historian. Um, her most recent book, In Meat We Trust, An Unexpected History of Carnivore America, looks at how Americans have processed, raised, sold, cooked, and eaten meat in the past 140 years. Um, in 2006, Maureen published Ambitious Brew, the story of American beer, which looks at 150 years of American beer history. Um, she has a master's and a PhD in American history um, Focusing primarily on technology and science from the his, uh, University of, I, excuse me, Iowa State uh, University. So, um, you know, a good person to take a look at the meat industry. And uh, I might add that the book that got her tenure was uh, All the Modern Conveniences, American Household Plumbing from 1840 to 1890. And Maureen, I got to tell you, I'm going to get that book. I want that book. <laughs> I'm serious. I want, want that. that. Book, huh? Yes. <laughs> Well, just remember, Katie, it yes. was a tenure book, so it's not written for a general audience. Well, you know, I, I don't consider myself a general type of person okay. in any way, so I'm, I'm all for the geek out kind of thing, as you will soon find out, my dear, in this program, because okay. if I am anything, it is a meat 
geek. So, um, yeah, I was thrilled by your book. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I totally recommend it to anybody. It's full of interesting insights and in how we came to the farming system that we have now. And believe me, it ain't the story you think it is. Um, so let's start, um, Maureen, with talking about something that you bring up, I think, in your introduction, which is basically the very entitled attitude we have towards food in this country and specifically towards meat. In other words, we think that meat should be cheap and we pay less than any other country on the planet for it. And we scream when any price changes happen. And yet we seem to be at this moment deploring how we got there and how we raise meat now. So what's that all about? Tell us about our entitled (laughs) attitude because I really, really appreciated that aspect of the book, I have to say. Okay, so everybody settle in because Katie and I are going to sit here for the next five hours. Yeah, geek out, man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I I will say, first of all, just let me preface all this by saying when I decided to write the book, I knew absolutely nothing about meat, its Mm -hmm. history, or anything else. I prefer to write about things I don't know anything about. So I had no agenda. So I I was surprised by everything. But what really surprised me and kind of set my... um, my narrative agenda in the book, as, if you will, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. was that I discovered right off the bat that during the colonial period, way back before we became the United States, uh, a great deal of the legislative framework that the colonists lived under was designed to protect and preserve livestock and to remove Native Americans from the land yes. because they didn't raise livestock. And by the time the revolution came along, the, the people who would become Americans were already well-known for just profound sense of entitlement. They really thought they were entitled to eat meat whenever they wanted, no matter what their social status or their income level, and that made them very different from everybody else in the world. Yeah, very interesting. Um, actually, and if, if one is a culinary historian of any type, of any stripe, and you look at old cookbooks, um, it is possible to see that uh, going back to, I mean, they weren't really published widely before the 1860s, but uh, every single meal was meat-centered. That's right. That's right. And they were, you know, they were at that time, but way back when they were, Americans tended to use every single bit of the animal yeah. in a way that we don't now. But absolutely, the expectation was, we are entitled to meet, and we're going to do whatever it takes to make it possible. We're going to build an infrastructure to make sure that that meat is supplied to us. Yeah, and also one of the other things, that, as you point out about the Native Americans, is that the fact that they did not keep uh, livestock rendered them savages in the eyes of the colonial. <laughs> That's right. Who, who knew? Uh, yeah, uh, Native I mean, Americans on the eastern seaboard did not keep any domestic livestock at all. <laughs> they had a few dogs. They ate primarily venison for meat. They ate other kinds of game, but in the eyes of these Europeans, anybody who didn't practice conventional livestock husbandry, I mean, William Bradford said, quite literally, they're not entitled to the land. It's ours to use. Yeah, beautiful quote there. Very nice. Now let's let's move on from the entitlement because I want to I want to be able to quickly um, move forward to the fact that um, another thing that really struck me about the book is is the sense of history repeating itself. Um, you know, as early as the eighteen uh, hundreds, there was that sense of suspicion and paranoia directed at anyone who was. Uh, I guess we should start with the guys who began to. Um, 
to uh, streamline uh, distribution, basically. Like as soon as refrigerated cars came into uh, play and people were able to transport meat across the country, um, that's when you started to see a lot of suspicion and paranoia directed towards meat companies that were doing that. And of course, I didn't write down the names of the guys who did it, but I know you'll supply that, Maureen. Um, But tell us a little bit about how... um, sort of, uh, you know, these, as soon as prices rose, like there was never any, just as there is no, no sense now of what inputs cost or that if mm-hmm. corn prices rise, then the price of meat will rise. Right. Then as now, uh, people do not seem to get that they're, you know, this cattle does not live on, or any livestock does not live on air. Um, and inputs cost money and labor costs money. It kind of reminds me of my catering days when, you know, people would say, well, that's really too expensive because apparently labor is free and food grows on trees. And why aren't you charging <laughs> yeah. me nothing? <laughs> right, 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 right. And and I, I was fascinated by those men like Swift and Armour who yeah. built these big um, meatpacking entities. They were responding to pressure from consumers who lived in cities. And by the way, urban growth is crucial to understanding the entire story uh, yes. from urbanites who wanted more efficient streamlined systems of meat production, and they also didn't want it in their cities. They didn't want slaughterhouses on every block. And the skills that these big meat packers developed, the managerial and technical skills and the infrastructure they built, which were very new at the time, I know that seems hard to believe, but 120 years ago, big corporations like that were very, very new. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these meat packers very quickly... um, used their technology and their managerial skills to also begin distributing other kinds of food, particularly moving fresh produce and fresh Mm -hmm. fruits from the West Coast to the urban East. Mm -hmm. And and as a result, anything that went wrong with the food system, it didn't matter what, if prices were too high, if food seemed like it was being tainted, by God, those meat packers were to blame. Even if they had nothing to do with it, they they just became the targets. Yeah, very interesting. In fact, to the point where there was legislation passed, and I can't remember the date of this, of course, but um, where uh, they were no longer allowed to move any other product but meat. I mean, it was like That's they, right. you know, they had, they had earned the ire of the public to the point where Congress was actually passing legislation against them. I That's that was right. It, it, right around 1920. And what's really yeah. interesting about that story is that the legislation that is called the consent decree, which forbid them, for example, to own stockyards or even shares of stockyards, mm-hmm. that was the compromise because the original proposal was to simply nationalize federalize the entire meat supply industry, if you can imagine such a thing. That was what was on the table. Well, you know, but at a certain point, I I do kind of wonder about um, what would have happened because um, the way the system has evolved and um, sort of the issues of monopolies are just as relevant now as they were then. I mean, we didn't, I didn't really... Notice this in the book, and I may have missed it, and forgive me if I did, but but uh, one thing that I didn't see addressed really was the consolidation of packers and um, and the whole sort of issue around vertical integration and how many packers are trying are now getting into the business of raising cattle just as they did then um, and that that seems to be going forward in a way that is uh, definitely having an impact on smaller entities that's right, but the, actually the last three chapters pay a lot of heed to to why we have this vertical integration and, mm-hmm. you know, what's the whole deal with that? And then, of course, the backlash, this business that we should eat local, eat organic, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. So <laughs> it, it is in there. And, um, and no, during the 1970s, there was a, a perceived global famine 
with all kinds of economic upheaval. If you're old enough to have lived mm -hmm. during the 70s, you remember exactly what I was talking than, about. And yeah. that is the point at which many large corporations, as, as one analyst put it, um, agriculture is the new IBM. And that's the point that corporations begin to move in in order to reduce consumer costs and to supply a global market, which I might add, meatpacking has been globally oriented since the colonial period. Yes. But what those corporate farmers did was build on things like the use of antibiotics and confinement that family farmers had pioneered during the 1940s and 1950s. That, you know, this right. idea that somehow corporations are to blame for every single thing that happens on the planet, I, I just think is not only misguided, but it really sort of blocks our way to moving toward any substantive change, because you know, if you're going to blame corporations, then the rest of us are witless dupes. Well, well, uh, we are witless dupes, but... Um... <laughs> well, maybe you are, but... man, I'm not. <laughs> I refuse. No, I think, a lot, I think that there is a lot of, of um, sense within the meat industry uh, that consumers basically are witless dupes and that cannot possibly understand uh, the complexities of their business, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and to a certain extent, I believe that many people, because they choose to be witless dupes, are witless dupes. And let's face yes. it, that is a fact. But I want to come back just for a second to um, your original point here, which is that, and this was what I have to say really struck me probably the most forcefully about this book, is that it wasn't a great cabal on the part of uh, corporations like Tyson, Cargill, Smithfield to develop what we call factory farming or confined intensive feeding operations or whatever. It was literally a labor shortage uh, during right. World War II. So can, can you expand a little bit on that? Because that really yes. did blow my mind. Yeah, well, it kind of blew mine, too, because, you know, while I was seven years I was writing this book, people kept saying, but corporations cost everything. Corp right. And I found that wasn't happened. In indeed, since the 1930s, well, the number of farmers in this country has been declining sure. systematically, not because they've been driven off, but because Americans prefer to live in town. But during the 1930s, especially in the late 30s when World War II broke out in Europe and the rest of the world, Americans just deserted farms in yeah. extraordinary numbers. Well, that was the leaving dust Leaving farmers as well, right? behind who with not even in the ballpark of enough labor mm -hmm. with also rising costs. Because remember, farmers compete for the land that they use, right? Mm -hmm. a, a lot of farmers yes. said, I can't afford to pasture livestock anymore. I have to automate feeding because I can't do it myself. I've got to use machines. I, I was completely surprised by that. Yeah, I thought that was just like a fascinating uh, nugget that explains so much about how uh, the whole sort of model of the meat industry has yes. evolved. And um, and that it's, you know, a, a lot of times when I look at these issues, it reminds me of, I don't know if you read Rachel Maddow's book, Drift. I have not read it. Um, no. I really recommend it because it was it's it's the story of how sort of um, executive power has kind of gradually and kind of behind the scene, you know, sort of just gradually and without any particular purpose has grown and grown and grown so that executives right. can now, you know, do things that were unthinkable 100 years ago or even 50 right. years ago. And yeah. I think that to a great extent that sort of premise of things growing uh, kind of organically without any particular agenda on the part of the people who are involved um, really applies to the food industry in so, so many ways. And um, this was just a perfect example of that. Um, you know what, Maureen, we should probably take a quick sponsor drop here because okay. we're at the 15 minute mark and uh, we will be right back with Maureen Ogle uh, talking about her fantastic new uh, book in meat we trust. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. You have been listening to Leaving by Dead Stars on the Heritage Radio Network.org. And we are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And uh, talking with me today is Maureen Ogle, the author of In Meat We Trust, a fascinating new uh, sort of, I guess, biography, a history of the meat industry. Um, Maureen, thanks again for joining me today. So um, let's move on and talk a little bit about sort of some of the fads or some of the the sort of external... uh, external forces that have shaped the meat industry to a certain extent. And one of them being um, this guy, Ansel Keys, who made this uh, very specious claim about how diet, your diet, uh, how meat leads directly to heart disease, et cetera, et cetera, right. and a host of other things. And that really had a huge impact on the industry, um, probably in the 70s and 80s, right? So can yeah. you talk a little bit about Ansel Keys and, and sort of the, the sort of prevailing, the, the continuous prevailing culture that he developed? Much to the dismay of the meatpacking industry, believe me. Yeah, in, in the right after, um, there really wasn't a heart disease industry <laughs> of the mm-hmm. sort we have now until after World War II, when someone came up with the. There seemed to be a heart disease epidemic in the United States, mm-hmm. and based on pretty much no evidence at all, various experts concluded it was because Americans ate a rich diet, particularly one heavy in meat. And Ansel Keys, who was a who actually developed K-rations for the U.S. military during World War II and did an important study of um, the effects of starvation during torture, if you can imagine such a thing. That Um, must have been fun. Took that that sort of, you know, heart disease is caused by X and eating meat will cause X and Mm -hmm. just jumped on it. And he was... He was one of these guys who really, really understood how to use the media, and he just was able to grab media's attention. As I think most people know, most journalists are not experts in the fields they cover, so they have to rely on experts. And Keyes was one of those guys who was, frankly, kind of an intellectual bully. And, And if we have anyone to blame for the claim that cholesterol, heart disease, and meat eating are all wrapped up in one tidy package, it's him. It's not that simple. The science about this is so complicated. I was flabbergasted to discover that pretty much everything I thought was true about the relationship between meat protein, cholesterol, heart disease, you know, most of it's not true. But it had a huge effect on the way Americans eat meat. And and because the main culprit that these heart fattists targeted was beef. Yeah. And beef consumption in this country plunged. It had always been the number one meat protein, but in starting in the late 1970s, Americans just gave up on meat for all intents and purposes and instead switched to chicken yeah. because chicken is lower in saturated fat. And that is the moment at which um, poultry began its great climb toward the crown, the throne mm-hmm. of our number one meat We call in it America. the king of birds, baby. It's the king yeah, of birds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still refer to chicken as the king. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but 
it really is. I mean, it is what I, I, and 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 to be honest with you, like I find I don't know why this is, and perhaps it's my age, whatever. But my interest in sort of red meats is declining as I get older, and uh, and yet somehow I can still stomach chicken. I don't go figure. I'm a card carrying carnivore. Let me tell you, I love my meats, but um, yeah, that yeah. it could be it could be a factor of aging because I'm here to tell you, I'm sure I'm a lot older than you. No, I don't think so. Us old peoples eat. <laughs> lot less food than we did when we were young. I still eat a ton of food because I exercise a lot, but I mean, yes. I do too, but I still I can't eat like I'm 30. No, definitely not. Well, I try not to anyway. Um, but then there were two other guys who had a really big impact on the meat industry and sort of the fad of not eating meat or conflating meat with disease, etc. And that is, of course, Ralph Nader um, and right. Jim Hightower. So let's talk a little bit about their... Um, you know, about their impact and uh, Hard Times, Hard Tomato, you know, that book that came High Tower's book and right. standardizing inspection, et cetera, et cetera, food safety, all of those things that, um, you know, I mean, I have to say, I've been to, I've been to a few slaughterhouses, Maureen. I mean, yeah, food safety and inspection. I mean, we really need that stuff. We really, really need uh, more, not less. Um, <laughs> people on the line, you know. Um, But let's talk a little bit about the impact that they had, because that too was a real body blow to the meat industry and particularly the cattle industry, which is my personal favorite amongst the three, because they've gone the farthest in improving their standards, in my opinion. Right. I I did not know anything about the whole food debate when I started the book. That's how completely ignorant I was. But of course, Mm -hmm. I became aware that there is this ferocious debate over our allegedly broken food system. So Mm -hmm. I knew by the time I got to that point chronologically, I knew that the last couple of chapters of the book were going to have to address where the heck does local organic, where did that come from? So mm-hmm. I had to set out to find the history of that, mm-hmm. and I did track it back to Nader. Nader had a profound influence, which I was aware of because he's not that much older than me. I really am old. And and um, he he also... Although much of his work was aimed at corporations, what he called secret governments, he also influenced a whole group of people he sure did. who were interested in rural reform, including people like Jim Hightower. And that was where the campaign against so-called corporate farmers began to take shape, just at the very moment when corporations were only just starting to show up. And yes, over a long period of time, that um, argument against corporate control of agriculture against big food, big ag, big meat, gradually took shape and developed into an infrastructure of its own. These people got their own place at the table at the USDA and the FDA. Mm-hmm. And if you want to track the whole eat locally thing, you know, don't look at Alice Waters. I was pretty sure Alice Waters had nothing to do with it. Um, you, you really got to look toward, you know, Nader acolytes working in the rural areas and also working to try to defeat urban poverty and urban hunger during Mm -hmm. the 1970s and 1980s. Well, those were my coming-of-age decades, um, because Uh I actually am your age, probably. Um, Okay. (laughs) Well, now I'm upset because you sound younger. No, not at (laughs) all. That's because I'm really, really immature, Maureen. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> so okay. Don't worry. Um, in fact, I took one of those just as a decide. I, d- I told you I tr- digress all the time. But I took I, I, my, so one of my friends had posted on Facebook, like, what's your real age? Okay, mine is 19. All right? Just saying. Ooh, so, um, no, not really. It's, it's actually quite accurate. Yes, it may be scary because I am a parent and it's probably not that great. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, it's, uh, but it is, it's correct. I am 19. Um, going on 58. Um, so the... 
that era of the 70s and 80s when organic and when uh, health food stores, remember? I mean, like you and I remember that, health food stores. It was mm-hmm. before Whole Foods. Like Whole Foods was not even like something you could even imagine that there would be a whole right. grocery store full of natural products or whatever. Right. Um, it was like, you know, that's what – and it was all about, you know, grains and sort of muddy-looking foods and no meat and all yeah. that kind of stuff. It was so depressing. I mean, I also started to learn how to cook in the 80s. And so, yeah, it was really like a bummer. Like I'm not going there. But um, I did I did recognize that this was kind of a result of, of really sort of the activism, the activist outlook, uh, which I grew up with, which included not just food, but also, you know, anti-war protests, uh, anti-nuclear protests. I mean, there was a lot of protesting going on in that era, yeah. right? And, yeah. and I feel like that was part of what you're talking about, of this kind of paradigm shift of, of bringing in that local, it was kind of the logical extension of that. Um, and so what I want to do in the next few minutes um, is talk about, uh, you know, the local locavore concept, um, which, you know, certainly has a lot of appealing qualities to it and the completely um, unrealistic and uh, pie in the sky mentality that it also reflects about feeding people like yeah. a huge population that is going to grow to nine billion by 2050. So what, you know, what one of the biggest sort of uh, things or, or things that drive me uh, in doing this radio work is how do we marry the idea behind sort of the locavore movement or the good food movement or whatever you want to call it um, and the realities of industrialized production, which we simply cannot just discard because we don't like the way they're doing it. Um, so what what do you what do you see as the next step? Like, how do you think consumers can influence food? Uh, do you think consumers care enough to really make those kinds of uh, influential decisions? Um, where's you know after doing seven years of research on this, where do you see it all going? Well, again, if we got five hours, yeah, right. I I I agree. Look, I'm I have a great deal of sympathy with the people who want local, organic, and so on and so mm. forth. I I honestly do. I, I think it's great that Alice Wanders wants kids to learn how to grow food and think about it. I, that's all crucial. Yeah. But but it, as you say, it honestly isn't going to feed the planet. And my take is, um, and to, well, before I let me just address another. I think the mass of consumers in this country don't have an opinion one way or another. I've often tried this experiment. If I'm at a party or something, I'll ask people if they're a locavore, and mostly I just get blank stares. Sure. What's a locavore? Mm-hmm. So I think that the whole pollen-esque Alice Waters thing is a very, they're very well-organized people. There's a zillion organizations that underpin that the food system is broken theory and, you know, protest and crusade. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that right now, statistically, they're a minority. I do think that we can't, you're right, we can't toss all this out. We can't toss the baby and the bathwater out, too. It, it, it ain't going to happen. It, it, it can't because, happen. We'll start to death. Someone, <laughs> as I've been saying lately, someone else will choose to feed the world if we Americans don't do it. If we want to toss away a big chunk of our economic infrastructure, well, right. be prepared to pay the price. But in the interim, I think that agriculture, especially livestock production, here's where I get into trouble with everybody, given the demand, yeah. we're actually doing an extraordinarily good job of producing that and, if, and inflicting the least amount of harm possible on land, air, water, 
and human beings. It, there's a good reason that it's all sort of out of sight, out of mind. I know that there are air. I wouldn't want to live next to a confinement farm. I'm sure you wouldn't either. Most of us don't have to. That's sort of the beauty of the system. Well, you do have to break some eggs and kill some animals in order to achieve the goal of getting food on the plate that urban consumers demand. I personally think that re- people, instead of saying, man, let's open another farmer's market, my attitude is agriculture has historically been, for human beings, the area of our greatest creativity. For millennia, we, we human beings have demonstrated wisdom and, and sort of thought ourselves and worked ourselves and invented ourselves out of problems, and we can do that now. Agriculture is just... Uh, is a hive of really, really interesting intellectual activity. Yes. We can improve agriculture, but the idea that we're going to go back to some imagined rural idol, you know, some imagined rural past, it's not going to happen, people. So stop <laughs> wasting your time on yeah. that and, and address a more substantive problem. That's what bugs me about the food critics. They're so unrealistic. Same here. You and I are so 100% on the same page with that. Because, I mean, it's like we have a thing of beauty here. We really do. And it's like you may not like all of the methods, and yes, it can be improved. But the fact of the matter is, is that we we have access to everything we want or need or could even dream of in the mm-hmm. food business. And you can choose with your dollars what you want to support and not support. Right. And I think, you know, the local board thing is great. And I think it's great for local economies. Um, I come from a very rural state and, and definitely agriculture is becoming a bigger and bigger part of the Rhode Island economy, for example, and certainly New York state right. is very exactly. much funded. And Iowa, where you are, is all about agriculture. Um, and yes, these are models that can be improved on, but the idea that these, that and this is what the meat industry really and i spent a lot of time talking to these people they don't get it it's like why are you mad at us we did such a good job here and yes there are animal rights abuses and that needs to be corrected and yes we need to take antibiotics out of the food system yes there are things that can be improved but oh my god we are the luckiest freaking people on the planet yeah i would agree and it's really, it's really sad to me that there is such an intense level of polarization between the industry, which literally lives in its own bubble, mm-hmm. and then all of us progressive foodie types who live in our bubble. Right. Where we think, oh, yeah, of course we can, you know, we can produce 6% of our gross domestic product by growing cows on pasture in, you know, right. I don't yeah. know where, you know. But I mean, And I like, don't know who's going to do the farming. I'm not volunteering to go. You yeah, know, no I'm not, I don't want to go back to the countryside, folks. So, yeah, I mean, I like going there when I want to, but I'm really more interested in gardening for flowers and vegetables. <laughs> I'm not interested in gardening at all. I want to write books. You know, yeah. that is the thing. At the very end of the book, I say, you know. We have so much intellectual capital in this country, and one reason we do is because agriculture has made it possible for most of us to not spend our time growing food, weeding, canning, putting food, you know, we... We're taking an awful lot for granted here. I I agree. I think that's a beautiful way to end this program, Maureen. Thank you so much, because that is so true. It's like we could not be doing what we are doing if we spent, especially women, uh, we're spending Uh, all of our time producing, preserving food, clothing for our families. I mean, because that's all we'd be doing. We'd be having this conversation. No, ma'am. Because we'd be too busy doing scut work, frankly. Absolutely. So, Maureen, tell people, like, first of all, you have a website. Where is it? 
MaureenOgle.com. It's O-G-L-E. That's right, right. MaureenOgle.com. You can learn more about Maureen and her books uh, on MaureenOgle.com. You also blog a lot, right, on that I site? do. I do. I do. It's, and it's on the website. Yeah, right. I'm also sort of a Twitter hound. I, I got to say, I, you know, there's an example. We wouldn't have Twitter if we were all out in the field picking crops and weeding, man. That, that's <laughs> That's right. And um, so you tweet, and you tweet under Maureen Ogle as well, right? I do. And, I do. Uh, and <clears throat> the book, again, is called In Meat We Trust. And um, you have an interesting publisher. I forget who it is now, but it was Houghton not a Mifflin name. Harcourt. Oh, it yeah. is? Okay. Um, so it's Houghton Mifflin. It's out in bookstores now. It's available on Amazon.com as well as probably Barnes & Noble, right? Oh, sure. And, everywhere. Uh, yeah. Everywhere and everywhere. And do you have any readings or anything that people might want to attend? Are you giving uh, talks anywhere? Uh, only if somebody invites me, and so far nobody has. Oh, God. <laughs> I, know. I, I know. I know the feeling, honey. I publicized books for 10 years, believe me. I know how hard I it know. is. I know. It's a, and it's, you know, it's forget the people, people kept saying, where are you going to go on your tour? I said, folks, what tour are you talking yeah, about? Right. There is no such because thing Because the anymore, publisher, unless you're yeah, right. already a famous person. Anthony Bourdain's going to go on a tour. Maureen Ogle is not going on a tour, right. folks. <laughs> Tony should be inviting you on tour with him. Anyway, um, we would have fun. You would. He's, I know you know him. Guy. We yes, would have I do. fun. Yeah, yeah, he is a fun guy. Um, so, Maureen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you to my sponsor, and uh, we'll be back next week. Folks, a reminder once again, I am moving my time slot from Sundays at 1 o'clock, which I have occupied for low these many years. Taking back my weekends, I'll be going to Mondays at noon starting in January. So for those of you who listen live, that's where I'll be. And uh, thanks again to everyone for listening. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.